Welcome to Immigration Review, your weekly source for immigration case law updates and insights. I'm your host, Kevin A. Gregg, back again to review the week's presidential immigration cases, rummaging through the decisions so you don't have to. This podcast is sponsored by Kurzban, Kurzban, Tetzeli, and Pratt, also known as KKTP, a law firm where I'm also a partner. Whether you are facing an immigration obstacle, a serious injury, or a legal issue in your business, KKTP will aggressively protect your best interests. This podcast is also sponsored by DocketWise, an all-in-one immigration forms and case management solution trusted by thousands of immigration lawyers across the U.S. I really like DocketWise. It makes immigration applications easy by allowing the clients to provide information through simple online questionnaires that are shareable by text or email and available in multiple languages. Not only that, DocketWise provides a comprehensive group of case management features, including invoicing and calendaring, secure messaging, task management, and a lot more. You can learn all about DocketWise and receive a 10% discount on your subscription by heading to docketwise.com immigration review so they know we sent you. And as always, this show does not constitute legal advice and has no bias other than to keep you up to date and to enable you, my dear colleagues, to excel in court. So, without further ado, let's start the review. Hi everyone, it's me, Kevin A. Greg. Oh wait, is that joke only funny the first time? Was it even funny the first time? Anyway, it's me, Liz, back again while Kevin is away. This week is slightly less packed than last week, but still just as interesting. But before I get to our regularly scheduled cases, I did want to briefly mention that a big decision was issued by the Northern District of Texas in State of Texas, State of Missouri versus Biden. In its decision, the district court ruled that the Biden administration's termination of the Migrant Protection Protocols, or MPP, violated the Administrative Procedure Act. The court also ruled that the termination of MPP causes defendants to violate INA Section 235. The decision is a massive 53 pages, and it was published late Friday night, so I'm not going to go into all the details here, but... I am sure that the APA nerds out there, like me, will be analyzing the decision in the days to come. Now, on to this week's Presidential Circuit Court cases and a bonus BIA case. There are six cases this week, half of which come from the Eighth Circuit alone. Here we go. First up, Matter of Hernandez Romero, published by the Board of Immigration Appeals, on August 10th, 2021. This case is about cancellation of removal under INA Section 240A, as well as special rule cancellation under Section 203B of the Nicaraguan Adjustment and Central American Relief Act, better known as NACARA. Ms. Hernandez Romero is from El Salvador, and she had previously been granted special rule cancellation of removal under Section 203B of the NACARA. She was later placed in removal proceedings where she applied for cancellation of removal pursuant to INA Section 240A, Parens A. The issue in this case was whether Ms. Hernandez-Romero's prior grant of special rule cancellation under the NACARA bars her under INA Section 240A, Parens C6, from applying for cancellation of removal 
under INA Section 240A, Parents A. So the BIA conducts a statutory construction analysis, beginning with the statutory language itself, to see if the statute is, quote, plain and unambiguous, end quote. According to the BIA, when, quote, considering the statute as a whole, end quote, the plain language of Section 203B of NACARA and INA Section 240A, Parents C, Parents 6, bars Ms. Hernandez-Romero from obtaining cancellation of removal under INA Section 240A, Parents A, because of her prior grants of special rule cancellation under the NACARA. Let's walk through the statutory language that the BIA believes prescribes this result. First, Section 203B of the NACARA states that, quote, the Attorney General may, under Section 240A of the INA, cancel removal of and adjust to the status of a non-citizen lawfully admitted for permanent residence, a non-citizen who is inadmissible or deportable from the United States, end quote. As to this language, the BIA relied on a 2013 decision in Sejdini v. Holder, in which the Sixth Circuit held that Congress's intent in Section 203 of the NACARA, quote, is clear, end quote, and that it, quote, allows the Attorney General to effectuate relief for a non-citizen under or by means of Section 240A of the INA, making Section 240A the vehicle for relief, end quote. In other words, according to the BIA in the Sixth Circuit case it relied upon, while Section 203 of the NACARA is a separate section, it is clear that the relief provided by Section 203 of the NACARA is the same as the relief provided under INA Section 240A. Then, the BIA moves on to analyzing INA Section 240A, Parent C, 6. Now, INA Section 240A, Parent C, 6 provides that a non-citizen, quote, whose removal has previously been canceled under Section 240A, is statutorily ineligible for cancellation of removal under INA Section 240A, Parents A, or Parents B1, end quote. So, because the cancellation of removal available under Section 203 of NACARA is essentially obtained through INA Section 240A, the BIA concluded that under the plain language of these statutes, INA Section 240A, Parent C6, quote, bars an applicant who has previously been granted special rule cancellation of removal under the NACARA from applying for cancellation of removal under Section 240A, Parents A, or Parents B1, end quote. Now, applying this conclusion to Ms. Hernandez-Romero's case, because she had already been granted special rule cancellation of removal under NACARA, and because that cancellation of removal was essentially the same as cancellation of removal under INA Section 240A, the BIA concluded that Ms. Hernandez-Romero was barred from obtaining cancellation of removal under INA Section 240A, because her removal had already been previously canceled under INA Section 240A by way of Section 203 of the NACARA, and so she could not obtain such relief again. However, the BIA does recognize that in the Ninth Circuit's remand order of this case, it apparently stated that, quote, it is ambiguous whether Congress intended INA Section 240A, Parent C6, to extend to NACARA Section 203 recipients, end quote. So because the BIA in this case was bound by that Ninth Circuit statement, the BIA then alternatively concluded that even if the statute was ambiguous, quote, Congress intended a grant of special rule cancellation of removal under the NACARA to bar under Section 240A, Parent C, Parent 6, a future grant of cancellation of removal under Section 240A, Parents A, or Parents B1 of the Act, end quote. 
This is because Congress explicitly made some provisions of the INA inapplicable to NACARA recipients and exempted NACARA recipients from others. For example, Congress stated in Section 203B of the NACARA that special rule cancellation is granted, quote, under INA Section 240A, end quote, and subject to the INA, quote, other than subsections B1, D1, and E of Section 240A, end quote. Additionally, Congress exempted NACARA applicants from other portions of the INA's cancellation of removal statute, including the annual cap on the number of applicants for cancellation of removal and suspension of deportation that can be granted in a single fiscal year. So, according to the BIA, Congress knew how to either explicitly exempt NACARA applicants from the bar to relief at INA Section 240A, C 6, or explicitly make that provision inapplicable to NACARA applicants if it had wanted to. But because it did not, the BAA concluded that Congress must have intended not to do so. The BAA also notes that the regulation at 8 CFR Section 1240.66, parens A, specifically states that, quote, to establish eligibility for NACARA special rule cancellation of removal, the applicant must show he or she is not subject to any bars to eligibility in Sections 240A, C of the INA, end quote. According to the BIA, this too supports their conclusion that Ms. Hernandez Romero is barred from obtaining cancellation of removal under INA Section 240A because she had previously obtained special rule cancellation of removal under Section 203 of the NACARA. A few quick notes. First, there is another underlying issue here of whether the IJ erred in concluding that Ms. Hernandez Romero failed to establish seven years of residency after being admitted. But the BIA here didn't reach this issue on remand because they rested their conclusion that Ms. Hernandez Romero was barred from obtaining cancellation of removal under INA Section 240A, even if she had met the residency requirement. However, the BAA does note that the Ninth Circuit requested that the BIA consider whether, based on Ms. Hernandez Romero's grant of TPS, she had established the necessary period of continuous residence in light of the Ninth Circuit's 2017 decision in Ramirez v. Brown. But, as the BAA recognized in this decision, the Supreme Court recently abrogated Ramirez in Sanchez v. Mayorkas, which was discussed on episode 59 of the podcast. The BIA also recognized that the issue of Ms. Hernandez-Romero's continuous residence may be further impacted by the Supreme Court's decision in Niz Chavez v. Garland, but the BIA stated it did not need to analyze that issue or the impact of the recent Supreme Court decisions on the issue because its conclusion that INA Section 240A-C6 bars Ms. Hernandez from applying for cancellation of removal is dispositive. It'll be interesting to see if Ms. Hernandez-Romero decides to pursue another petition for review to the Ninth Circuit in which the Ninth Circuit would then have to determine whether to defer to the BIA's interpretation here. We'll see. And that is Matter of Hernandez-Romero. Next up, Sanchez-Ruano v. Garland, published by the Ninth Circuit on August 11, 2021. This is another short case about cancellation of removal and what offenses may bar an applicant from obtaining cancellation of removal. Mr. Sanchez Ruano is from Mexico, and he lawfully entered the United States in 1995, but he then overstayed his authorized admission. In 2013, DHS served Mr. Sanchez Ruano an NTA that charged him as removable under INA Section 237A1B 
for staying in the United States for longer than permitted. He conceded removability, then requested a continuance pending the outcome of a U visa application he had filed. He did receive several continuances over many years, but after USCIS denied his U visa application, Mr. Sanchez Ruano applied for non-LPR cancellation of removal under INA Section 240A-B. The IJ denied the cancellation of removal application because, according to the IJ, Mr. Sanchez Ruano was statutorily ineligible for cancellation of removal due to a conviction for marijuana possession, which is a conviction for an offense described under INA Section 212A2. Mr. Sanchez Ruano appealed to the BIA, arguing that INA Section 212 did not apply to him as he had been lawfully admitted to the United States. And because Mr. Sanchez Ruano asserted only INA Section 237 applied to him, but the BIA dismissed the appeal, summarily affirming the IJ's determination that Mr. Sanchez Ruano was statutorily ineligible for cancellation of removal because he had committed an offense under INA Section 212A2. Mr. Sanchez Ruano renewed his arguments in his petition for review. While the Ninth Circuit recognized that it would usually conduct a Chevron deference analysis to determine whether the IJ properly interpreted the non-LPR cancellation of removal statute at INA Section 240AB, the Ninth Circuit determined here that it did not need to, quote, engage in a detailed Chevron analysis, end quote, because, quote, binding precedent and the statutory language dictate the result, end quote. Spoiler alert, it doesn't look good for Mr. Sanchez Ruano. Before announcing its holding, the Ninth Circuit briefly walks through the different stages of removal proceedings. First, the removability stage, then second, the relief stage. And it also runs through the difference between the inadmissibility grounds at INA Section 212 and the deportability grounds at INA Section 237. Specifically, the Ninth Circuit clarifies that, at the first stage, or the removability stage, whether a crime renders a non-citizen removable often depends on the non-citizen's status in and previous admission to the United States. In other words, persons who lawfully entered the United States and have overstayed their authorized admission, or persons who have become lawful permanent residents, are subject only to the deportability grounds at INA Section 237. But persons who did not lawfully enter the United States or entered without inspection are subject to the inadmissibility grounds at INA Section 212. And as the Ninth Circuit recognizes, quote, the list of offenses related to inadmissibility and the list of offenses related to deportability are sometimes overlapping and sometimes divergent, end quote. A classic example is the firearms offense deportability ground at INA Section 237A2C. There is no equivalent inadmissibility ground. The Ninth Circuit then moves on to the second stage, or the relief stage, and clarifies that, quote, once the inquiry moves to the second stage, the distinction between an inadmissible and deportable non-citizen becomes irrelevant, end quote. Applying that proposition here, the Ninth Circuit relied on its 2020 decision in Ortega-Lopez v. Barr, which was discussed on episode 26 of the pod, and its 2004 decision in Gonzalez-Gonzalez v. Ashcroft, in which the court stated that, quote, unlike the removal statutes, the cancellation of removal relief statute does not treat inadmissible and deportable non-citizens differently. Rather, the requirements for cancellation of removal apply regardless of whether the non-citizen is inadmissible or deportable for removal purposes, end quote. So, under Ninth Circuit binding precedent, the question here already had an answer. At the second relief stage, and for purposes of non-LPR cancellation of removal, 
it doesn't matter whether at the first removability stage, a non-citizen is inadmissible or deportable. But the Ninth Circuit also looked to the statutory language, which it also believed was clear. INA Section 240A Parents B states that non-LPR cancellation of removal is not available if a non-citizen has been, quote, convicted of an offense under Section 1182A2, 1227A2, or 1227A3 of Title VIII of the U.S. Code, end quote. In other words, an offense described at INA Section 212A2, Section 237A2, or Section 237A3. And according to the Ninth Circuit, it is, quote, irrelevant whether the non-citizen seeking cancellation of removal was in the country unlawfully or was in the country lawfully. The non-citizen does not qualify for cancellation of removal if the non-citizen has been convicted of an offense listed in any of the three statutes, end quote. Now, Mr. Sanchez Ruano did try to argue that his case could be distinguished from the Ninth Circuit's binding precedent in Gonzalez-Gonzalez because in that case, the non-citizen had not lawfully entered the United States and was therefore arguing that the deportability grounds at INA Section 237A2 did not apply to him. Here, Mr. Sanchez Ruano presented the inverse situation. He had lawfully entered and was arguing that the inadmissibility grounds at INA Section 212A2 did not apply to him. But the Ninth Circuit found this distinction to be without a difference under the circuit's binding precedent, which states that, quote, the plain language of INA Section 240A parents B indicates that it should be read to cross-reference a list of offenses in three statutes, rather than the statutes as a whole, end quote. So the Ninth Circuit followed its precedent and ruled that, quote, the commission of an offense listed under any of the three statutes cross-referenced in INA Section 240A, Parents B1C, bars cancellation of removal regardless of whether the petitioner entered illegally and committed an offense described under Section 237A2, or whether the petitioner entered legally and committed an offense described under Section 212A2, end quote. And because Mr. Sanchez Ruano conceded that he committed an offense under INA Section 212A2, he was statutorily ineligible for cancellation of removal. As a result, the Ninth Circuit denied Mr. Sanchez Ruano's petition for review, and he will be removed. And just one more thing about this case. The Ninth Circuit in a footnote recognized that at least one other circuit, the Seventh Circuit, has come to a similar conclusion as the Ninth Circuit's in this case. According to the Ninth Circuit, in the 2011 decision Barma v. Holder, the Seventh Circuit also concluded that, just like in this case, a non-citizen who had lawfully entered the United States but then overstayed his visa and was charged with removability under INA Section 237 was ineligible for cancellation of removal due to his conviction of an offense listed under INA Section 212A2. And that is Sanchez Ruano v. Garland. Moving on to our string of three Eighth Circuit cases, the first of which is Mohammed v. Garland, published by the Eighth Circuit on August 13, 2021. This is a case about protection under the Convention Against Torture and government acquiescence. Mr. Mohammed is from Somalia, and he entered the United States in 2001. He was convicted of several felonies and was then placed in removal proceedings in 2016. In his removal proceedings, he applied for protection under the CAT, 
it introduced evidence that, quote, al-Shabaab, an Islamic militant group that controls large parts of Somalia, attacks people with ties to foreign governments and those who do not conform to its beliefs, end quote. Mr. Muhammad asserted that he would more likely than not be tortured if he were returned to Somalia because his brother-in-law worked for the United States Navy. He also provided evidence that his brothers had been kidnapped and beaten in Somalia by al-Shabaab members for using cell phones, and that his brother-in-law's grandfather was abducted because he had connections to the United States. The IJ found both that it was more likely than not that Mr. Muhammad would be tortured if he were removed to Somalia, and that the Somalian government would acquiesce in that torture, because the government had been infiltrated by al-Shabaab members, and because Mr. Muhammad is a member of a minority clan in Somalia, is westernized, and uses drugs and alcohol. The BAA reversed and ordered Mr. Muhammad removed. In doing so, the BAA relied on its 2006 decision in matter of JFF, and concluded that the IJ's reasoning was based on a hypothetical, quote, chain of occurrences, end quote, instead of a plausible view of the facts and evidence in the record. As a result, the BAA rejected the IJ's conclusions about the likelihood of torture and about government acquiescence. In his petition for review to the Eighth Circuit, Mr. Muhammad raised two issues. One, that the BIA applied the wrong legal standard, and two, that the BIA failed to address relevant evidence and impermissibly engaged in its own fact-finding. As to the first issue, Mr. Muhammad argued that the BIA wrongly relied on matter of JFF because that case, quote, analyzed a chain of events leading to torture rather than the combined effect of several independent sources of risk, end quote. Instead, Mr. Muhammad argued that the BIA should have relied on its 2002 decision in matter of GA, which did consider all independent risk factors in the aggregate. And, according to Mr. Muhammad, because the BIA wrongly relied on matter of JFF, it did not consider how the independent sources of risk in his case, for example, his minority clan membership, his alcohol and drug use, his westernization in the United States, and his relatives' work for the United States Navy, come together to make it more likely than not that he will be tortured. But the Eighth Circuit disagreed. This is because, according to the Eighth Circuit, the issue the BAA had in the case was not whether Mr. Muhammad faced a serious risk if he were captured by al-Shabaab. In fact, the BAA did acknowledge that Mr. Muhammad was, quote, at serious risk of violence and possibly torture if he were captured by al-Shabaab, end quote. Instead, according to the Eighth Circuit, the BIA's main issue was that Mr. Muhammad's evidence, quote, could not establish a greater than 50% chance that he would fall into al-Shabaab's hands in the first place, something that must happen before al-Shabaab could torture him, end quote. In other words, the, quote, hypothetical chain of events, end quote, that the BIA took issue with was not the independent sources of risk present if Mr. Muhammad was captured by al-Shabaab. Rather, it was whether Mr. Muhammad would be captured by al-Shabaab at all. The Eighth Circuit agreed that this was the proper analysis and that the BIA properly applied matter of JFF. As to the second issue, Mr. Muhammad not only argued that the BIA ignored evidence that supported the IJ's conclusion, but also that the BIA allegedly made three improper new findings of fact. But the Eighth Circuit again disagreed with Mr. Muhammad, explaining that these three statements were not independent fact-finding but rather, quote, each instead explains how the IJ's conclusions outpaced the evidence, end quote. 
It then walked through the three statements Mr. Muhammad identified and explained why, according to the Eighth Circuit, all three statements were actually supported by the record before the BIA. As a result, the Eighth Circuit concluded that the BIA, one, showed how the IJ took, quote, an implausible view of the evidence, end quote, and two, put forward enough analysis grounded in the record to, quote, satisfy a reasonable mind that the IJ committed clear error, end quote. Now, Mr. Muhammad had also argued that the BIA impermissibly reweighed the evidence regarding whether the government would acquiesce in his torture and that it substituted its own findings for the IJ's. The IJ had determined that Mr. Muhammad had established that the Somalian government would acquiesce in his torture for two reasons. One, because al-Shabaab is reported to have infiltrated the Somalian government, and two, because Mr. Muhammad is a minority clan member who was westernized, uses drugs and alcohol, and has ties to the United States military. The BIA had held that both of these reasons were, quote, too thinly supported, end quote. And the Eighth Circuit again agreed with the BIA. Notably, in his removal proceedings, Mr. Muhammad's expert testified at his hearing that, quote, he was not aware of any incident in which a Somali government official acquiesced in torture by a member of al-Shabaab, end quote. And that meant, according to the Eighth Circuit, that, quote, the Somalian government would be unable, but not unwilling, to prevent torture, end quote. The Eighth Circuit agreed with the BIA's conclusion and stated that Mr. Muhammad had not pointed the court to any evidence to conclude otherwise. As a result, the Eighth Circuit denied Mr. Muhammad's petition for review. There is a dissent in this case from Judge Kelly, so let's quickly see what she had to say. According to the dissent, the BIA did apply the wrong legal standard and did engage in impermissible fact-finding. Specifically, the dissent stated that the IJ's warning that, quote, torture will happen, and that is not a matter of if, but when it would happen, end quote, was based on three independent risk factors, which, according to Judge Kelly, quote, individually or cumulatively create a greater than 50% chance, end quote, that Mr. Muhammad will be tortured. Judge Kelly noted that the BIA had agreed that Mr. Muhammad will be tortured if he is captured by al-Shabaab but found that he had failed to establish that it is more likely than not that he will be captured by al-Shabaab in the first place. But according to the dissent, quote, neither the BIA nor any court of appeals has previously required a petitioner seeking relief under the CAT to fulfill a separate prerequisite of establishing the sequence of events that will cause them to fall within control of the person or entity that will torture them, end quote. Instead, according to Judge Kelly, Quote, whether a cat petitioner has demonstrated a likelihood of capture by their torturer is not a separate prerequisite or threshold question, but simply one consideration in evaluating whether they have met their burden of establishing a likelihood of torture. End quote. And according to the dissent, it was error for the BIA to require Mr. Muhammad to do just that separately establish the series of events that will lead to his capture, in addition to demonstrating the likelihood of torture. The dissent goes on to say that even if the BIA did believe that the IJ erred by not specifically addressing the probability that Mr. Muhammad will be captured by al-Shabaab in the first place, the BIA, quote, should have remanded the case to the IJ for further fact-finding on this point, end quote. But it did not do so, and, according to the dissent, it instead engaged in impermissible fact-finding, and whether those findings are supported by the record is irrelevant, 
because, quote, the BIA is not permitted to comb through the record to make new factual determinations, end quote. The dissent then further disagreed with the majority's approval of the BIA's reliance on matter of JFF, believing that the two cases, Mr. Muhammad's case and matter of JFF, were fundamentally different. For example, in JFF, the BIA was presented with a series of dependent events, each of which had less than 50% chance of occurring. Here, according to the dissent, the IJ identified three independent risk factors that, whether standing alone or cumulatively, will make it more likely than not that Mr. Muhammad will face torture in Somalia. Therefore, the dissent believed that the BIA should have applied matter of GA rather than matter of JFF. And for those reasons, Judge Kelly would have granted Mr. Muhammad's petition for review. And that is Muhammad v. Garland. Now, while we're still in the Eighth Circuit, we're moving on to cases that involve motions to reopen. First up is Yusuf v. Garland, published by the Eighth Circuit on August 9th, 2021. This is a short case about untimely motions to reopen due to changed country conditions and due process violations. Miss Youssef is from Somalia and was lawfully admitted to the United States as a refugee in 1998, but she never naturalized. In 2012, she pleaded guilty to unintentional second-degree felony murder under Minnesota Statute Section 609.19, Subdivision 2, Parents 1. DHS then placed her in removal proceedings in 2018, while she was still serving her term of imprisonment in the custody of the Minnesota Department of Corrections. The IJ found her removable under INA Section 237A2AII for having committed an aggravated felony. Miss Yusuf waived her right to appeal and was ultimately ordered removed to Somalia. She then filed a motion to reopen her case 10 months later to apply for cat protection and other related relief but the IJ denied and the BIA affirmed that denial. Ms. Yusuf then filed a second motion to reopen to the BIA in November of 2019, this time on two different bases. One, changed country conditions in Somalia, and two, in the alternative, pursuant to the BIA's sua sponte authority. Notably, a motion to reopen must be filed within 90 days of the final order but an untimely motion to reopen may be excused if the non-citizen shows there has been, quote, changed country conditions based on evidence not previously available, and if she makes a prima facie showing that, if reopened, her case would lead to relief, end quote. The BIA can also reopen or reconsider cases sua sponte in exceptional situations. In support of the first, Ms. Yusuf argued that, since her final order of removal was issued in 2018, Somalia had become increasingly unsafe in that, as a gay woman and recent convert to Christianity, she faces a high likelihood of torture in Somalia. But the BIA determined that the evidence she presented did not show changed country conditions, but rather, quote, a continuation of country conditions, end quote. As a result, the BIA held that the motion to reopen was time-barred. In support of the latter, Miss Yusuf argued that she was deprived of a fair removal hearing because she had been under the influence of methamphetamine at the time of her removal proceedings and thus incompetent to proceed. But the BIA held that the request for sua sponte reopening based on her alleged intoxication must be denied because, according to the BIA, Miss Yusuf did not, quote, 
present evidence contemporaneous with her hearing to establish that she was intoxicated, end quote. And as a result, she had not established that she was denied a fundamentally fair hearing. Miss Yusuf then filed a petition for review, arguing that the BIA abused its discretion in denying her second motion to reopen. On the first basis, the Eighth Circuit determined that there was no abuse of discretion in the BIA's assessment that the evidence, quote, unfortunately shows that the poor conditions facing gays and Christians in Somalia have remained substantially similar since the time of her hearing, end quote, and that reopening was not warranted on the basis of changed country conditions. On the second basis, the Eighth Circuit again agreed, concluding that Ms. Yusuf, quote, has not shown both a fundamental procedural error and resulting prejudice as is required to establish a due process violation, end quote. This is because, according to the Eighth Circuit, quote, nothing in the record suggests that the IJ would have had any indication that Miss Yusuf, who was still incarcerated at the time, was intoxicated or otherwise unable to understand the proceedings, end quote. And invoking the BIA's 2011 decision in matter of MAM, the Eighth Circuit further stated that, quote, absent indicia of mental incompetency, an IJ is under no obligation to analyze a non-citizen's competency, end quote. As a result, the Eighth Circuit denied Miss Yusuf's petition. Some quick notes on this case, as there were a few brief jurisdictional and mootness issues that the Eighth Circuit mentioned. First, the government apparently argued that Miss Yusuf's aggravated felony conviction prevented the Eighth Circuit from reviewing her factual challenges to the BIA's decision. But the Eighth Circuit stated that under Nasrallah v. Barr, it could review both factual and legal challenges raised in a non-citizen's appeal of the denial of a motion to reopen, seeking to apply for relief under CAT. Second, the Eighth Circuit does note here that it usually wouldn't have jurisdiction to review the BIA's decision whether to reopen proceedings sua sponte pursuant to 8 CFR section 1003.2a because that decision is, quote, committed to agency discretion by law. End quote. However, because Ms. Yusuf raised a colorable constitutional claim, in other words, that her proceedings were fundamentally unfair because she was under the influence of meth, the Eighth Circuit did have jurisdiction to review that issue. Just another reminder to raise those constitutional issues if you do have colorable ones. Third, the government also apparently filed a motion to dismiss the petition for review as moot, because Ms. Yusuf had not only already been removed to Somalia, but she had also allegedly already left Somalia for a third, albeit unknown, country. But the Eighth Circuit quickly rejected this argument in a footnote, stating that, quote, the record on this issue is entirely undeveloped, end quote. That, according to the government's own admission, Ms. Yusuf's removal, quote, does not by itself moot her claim to cat relief, end quote. And that the government cited no authority that, quote, suggests her temporary flight to a third country moots her claim for protection under CAT. End quote. And that is Yusuf V. Garland. Next up, Gonzalez Kecheluno V. Garland, published by the Eighth Circuit on August 12th. 2021. This is a short case about the validity of motions to reopen filed to seek a continuance while a U visa application is pending with USCIS. And, spoiler alert, this is the only non citizen friendly case we have this week. 
Miss Gonzalez Quecheluno and her two daughters are from Mexico, and all three of them applied for admission into the United States at the San Isidro Port of Entry in 2015. After Miss Gonzalez Quecheluno and her daughters were granted parole, DHS then terminated their parolee status and issued NTAs against them, charging them as removable under INA Section 212A7A little i, big i. Ms. Gonzalez Quecheluno and her two daughters conceded removability and applied for asylum, withholding, and cat protection. The IJ denied all relief and ordered them removed to Mexico. After they were ordered removed in 2017, Ms. Gonzalez Quecheluno and her daughters filed for U non immigrant status with USCIS and then timely appealed the IJ's decision to the BIA. While the appeal was pending, Ms. Gonzalez Quecheluno filed a motion asking the BIA to administratively close their case to await the outcome of their U visa applications. However, after Ms. Gonzalez Quecheluno filed this motion, but before the BIA ruled on it, former Attorney General Jeff Sessions issued his 2018 decision in matter of Castro Tomb, which effectively stripped the BIA and IJs of their authority to grant administrative closure, except for in very limited circumstances none of which were present in Ms. gonzalez Quecheluno's case. As a result, the BIA denied the motion for administrative closure in September 2018. At the same time, the BIA also dismissed her appeal. Ms. gonzalez Quecheluno then filed a motion to reopen to the BIA, relying on the BIA's 2012 decision in matter of Sanchez-Sosa, requesting that the BIA reopen the case and remand it to the IJ so that Ms. gonzalez Quecheluno and her daughters could seek a continuance pending adjudication of their U visa applications. But the BIA again denied this motion in May 2020. Ms. gonzalez Quecheluno then filed a petition for review to the Eighth Circuit. In its decision, the Eighth Circuit started by discussing matter of Sanchez-Sosa, in which the BIA, quote, articulated the factors that an IJ and the BIA should consider in determining whether a non-citizen has established good cause to continue a case involving a U non-immigrant visa petition, end quote. These factors are the following, quote, one, the DHS's response to the motion to continue, two, whether the underlying visa petition is prima facie approvable, and three, the reasons given for the continuance and other procedural considerations, end quote. The Eighth Circuit had approved of and adopted these factors in their 2019 decision, Caballero Martinez, in which the court stated that the Sanchez-Sosa factors, quote, control where, as here, the petitioner, one, applied for a U visa while appealing a final order of removal to the BIA, and two, subsequently requested remand for a continuance from the BIA rather than a continuance directly from the IJ, end quote. In Ms. gonzalez Quecheluno's case, the government had conceded that she and her daughters were prima facie eligible for U visa status, as well as their due diligence in seeking such status. And, as the Eighth Circuit recognized, Ms. gonzalez Quecheluno had, one, applied for a U visa while appealing a final order of removal to the BIA, and two, subsequently requested remand for a continuance from the BIA rather than a continuance from the IJ. As a result, the Eighth Circuit stated that the BIA could have done one of two things. One, apply the Sanchez-Sosa factors itself, or two, remand to the IJ to determine whether continuance was warranted. But the BIA did neither. Instead, the BIA merely referenced Sanchez-Sosa and summarily stated that the Eighth Circuit's decision in Caballero-Martinez, quote, did not require reopening, end quote. 
Then, the BAA seemed to further rely on the fact that only USCIS had jurisdiction to adjudicate U-Visa petitions. But, as the Eighth Circuit stated, under Caballero Martinez, the IJ or the BAA, quote, may grant continuances on the basis of pending U-Visa petitions, even though they do not have jurisdiction over U-Visa petitions, end quote. Therefore, the Eighth Circuit concluded that, quote, to the extent the BIA declined to remand the case due to its lack of jurisdiction over U-Visa applications, it erred, end quote. The Eighth Circuit then took further aim at the BIA's suggestion that the estimated five-year wait time for adjudication of a U-Visa application was somehow justification for denying Ms. gonzalez Quechaluno's motion. But, according to the Eighth Circuit, the five-year wait time actually supports a grant of Ms. gonzalez Quechaluno's motion because Sanchez Sosa explicitly provides that, quote, if the non-citizen shows that he has filed a completed application before the USCIS and the petition appears to meet the necessary criteria to be granted, then any delay not attributable to the non-citizen augurs in favor of a continuance, end quote. The Eighth Circuit then cited numerous unpublished BIA cases over the past four years in which the BIA has remanded cases to the immigration court, quote, for consideration of whether proceedings should be continued pending a decision by USAIS on a U-Visa petition, end quote. The Eighth Circuit concluded that the BIA abused its discretion by, one, departing from established policy when it failed either to apply the Sanchez-Sosa factors or remand to allow the IJ to do so, and two, failing to provide a rational explanation for its decision, including its treatment of binding precedent in Caballero-Martinez. So, Ms. gonzalez Quechaluno and her daughter's cases will be remanded to the BIA, who must then either apply the Sanchez-Sosa factors itself and determine whether continuance is warranted, or remand the case to the IJ to do so. Just a quick note regarding administrative closure, as I have become quite invested in the issue. In a footnote, the Eighth Circuit recognizes that current Attorney General Garland has recently overruled Matter of Castro Tomb in his decision issued last month in Matter of Cruz Valdez, which was discussed on episode 64 of the pod. While the Eighth Circuit's decision in this case didn't involve the BIA's 2018 denial of Ms. gonzalez Quechaluno's motion for administrative closure, Ms. gonzalez Quechaluno and her daughters may now be able to seek administrative closure in front of the BIA. This is because the Eighth Circuit is not one of the circuits who has already ruled on the validity of matter of Castro Tomb, so the BIA here would no longer be bound by that decision. And under the BIA's current and long-standing precedent governing administrative closure, matter of Evitesian and matter of WYU, awaiting a decision from USCIS on a U-Visa application has historically been one of the prime uses of administrative closure. So I'd be interested to know if Ms. gonzalez Quechaluno and her daughters decide to try again for administrative closure. And that is gonzalez Quechaluno v. Garland. And now, on to the last case this week. In Gonzalez-Hernandez v. Garland, published by the Fifth Circuit on August 13th, 2021. This is objectively the longest case this week, and, in my opinion, the most difficult. So buckle up and enjoy the ride with me. The case is about the difference between motions to reconsider under INA Section 240-C6 and motions to reopen under INA Section 240-C7. Mr. Gonzalez-Hernandez is from El Salvador. 
He entered the United States when he was six years old and became a lawful permanent resident in 1992. In 2001, he pleaded guilty to one count of violating Texas Penal Code Section 22.05b. He was then served with an NTA, charging him as removable under INA Section 237A2AIII as a non-citizen who committed an aggravated felony defined by INA Section 101A43F as a crime of violence. He applied for withholding of removal in 2002, but the IJ denied the application and ordered him removed to El Salvador, where he has resided ever since. Over a decade later, on April 17, 2018, the Supreme Court published its decision in Sessions v. DeMaia, which held that the term crime of violence as defined in 18 U.S. Code Section 16b and incorporated into INA Section 101A43F, is unconstitutionally vague, such that it violates a non-citizen's right to due process. On the same day that that decision was published, Mr. Gonzalez Hernandez's brother told him about the DeMaia case and reached out to an immigration attorney and nonprofit organizations. Mr. Gonzalez Hernandez was then assigned pro bono counsel on June 21, 2018. On July 12, 2018, pro bono counsel filed a, quote, motion to reconsider and terminate, or in the alternative, reopen, end quote, the proceedings based on the change in law in Sessions v. DeMaia. Notably, quote, the government did not file a response to the motion, end quote. The IJ denied the motion as untimely because it was not filed within 30 days of the final administrative order of removal as required for motions to reconsider under INA Section 240C-6B. However, the IJ did assume that Mr. Gonzalez-Hernandez was entitled to equitable tolling due to the change in law. But the IJ found that the date such equitable tolling ended was April 17, 2018, the date DeMaio was published, and the date on which Mr. Gonzalez-Hernandez's brother told him of the decision, according to affidavits submitted by Mr. Gonzalez-Hernandez himself. So because Mr. Gonzalez-Hernandez did not file his motion until July 12, 2018, 86 days after the tolling ended according to the IJ, the IJ concluded that the motion was untimely. The BIA agreed and dismissed Mr. Gonzalez-Hernandez's appeal. The BIA also determined that Mr. Gonzalez-Hernandez's motion could not be considered a motion to reopen because, quote, a change in law could not form the basis of a motion to reopen, end quote. Notably, if his motion could be considered a motion to reopen, he would have had 90 days under INA Section 240C7CI after April 17, 2018, to file the motion. Mr. Gonzalez-Hernandez then timely filed a petition for review. In his petition, Mr. Gonzalez-Hernandez argued three things. One, that the BIA erred in concluding that his motion was untimely. Two, that the BIA erred by declining to construe his motion as a motion to reopen. And three, that the BIA's decision violated his constitutional equal protection and due process rights. The Fifth Circuit disagreed with all three arguments. As to issue one, the Fifth Circuit determined that the BIA and the IJ did not err in concluding that equitable tolling ended on the date Mr. Gonzalez-Hernandez learned of the DeMaia decision. This is because under Fifth Circuit precedent in its 2017 decision, Gonzalez-Cantu v. Sessions, quote, the date of discovery of a case that could be the basis of the non-citizen's motion was the point at which filing deadlines begin to run, end quote. And because Mr. Gonzalez-Hernandez's own affidavits stated that April 17, 2018 was the date he learned of the DeMaia decision, 
the Fifth Circuit concluded that the BIA and the IJ were correct in determining that that was the date equitable tolling stopped for Mr. Gonzalez-Hernandez. As to issue two, Mr. Gonzalez-Hernandez argued that the BIA erred in not considering his motion a motion to reopen, and that he was entitled to the 90-day filing deadline for motions to reopen under INA Section 240C-7CI. But the Fifth Circuit again disagreed. In doing so, the Fifth Circuit tried to explain the difference between a motion to reconsider and a motion to reopen under the statutes. According to the Fifth Circuit, motions to reconsider under INA Section 240C6C look back to the prior proceedings and must, quote, specify errors of law or fact in the previous order, end quote. On the other hand, motions to reopen under INA Section 240C7 must state, quote, the new facts that will be proven at a hearing to be held if the motion is granted and shall be supported by affidavits or other evidentiary material, end quote. And under the regulation at 8 CFR Section 1003.2C1, the BAA should deny reopening, quote, unless it appears to the board that evidence sought to be offered is material and was not available and could not have been discovered or presented at the former hearing, end quote. And the BIA believed in this case that the statute does not allow a change in law to constitute new facts to form the basis of a motion to reopen. Amicus in this case argued that the BIA erred in making that conclusion, but the Fifth Circuit agreed with the BIA again. This is despite the fact that the amicus invoked the Supreme Court's 2008 decision in Data v. Mukasey, in which the Supreme Court held that a motion to reopen asks the BIA, quote, to change its decision in light of newly discovered evidence or a change in circumstances, end quote. And the fact that amicus also noted that both the BIA and the Fifth Circuit had previously granted motions to reopen based on changes in law. As to the previous Fifth Circuit decisions, this panel concluded that the circuit had never actually addressed this specific issue head-on, and so, even if they had granted petitions for review to non-citizens in similar circumstances as Mr. Gonzalez-Hernandez, none of those petitions for review presented the exact issue here. As to the previous BIA decisions, the Fifth Circuit stated that they were all unpublished opinions which, quote, would not constitute a settled course of adjudication from which deviation would constitute an abuse of discretion. End quote. As to the Supreme Court's statement in Data v. Mukasey, while the Fifth Circuit did state that it didn't believe there was any tension between the BIA's decision and the Supreme Court's statement, it also stated that even if there was tension, the tension, quote, must be dispelled in favor of the BIA, simply because the statute does not permit a contrary reading, end quote. Okay then. And it seems the Fifth Circuit believed this because under the statute and the regulations, a motion to reconsider involves challenges to both law and facts, while a motion to reopen only allows reopening based on new facts. And to conclude differently, according to the Fifth Circuit, would, quote, contravene the statute and collapse the difference between a motion to reconsider and a motion to reopen with respect to changes in law, making the 30-day time limit for motions to reconsider new legal decisions superfluous, end quote. So, because Mr. Gonzalez-Hernandez's motion relied only on a change in law, not on new facts as understood by the BIA and now the Fifth Circuit, his motion could only be construed as a motion to reconsider. And because he filed that motion 86 days after the equitable tolling period stopped, it was thus untimely, according to the BIA and the Fifth Circuit. Now, as to the last issue, which, as a refresher, 
were the constitutional equal protection and due process violations Mr. Gonzalez-Hernandez raised, the Fifth Circuit concluded that Mr. Gonzalez-Hernandez did not, quote, allege any kind of purposeful discrimination on the part of the BIA, end quote, and that he did not, quote, show that immigrants to whom the BIA granted relief were similarly situated, end quote. The Fifth Circuit concluded that the BIA's decision did not violate Mr. Gonzalez-Hernandez's equal protection rights. As to his due process rights, the Fifth Circuit explained that Mr. Gonzalez-Hernandez had been given, quote, the opportunity to brief and have the BIA rule on his motion for reconsideration, end quote, that Mr. Gonzalez-Hernandez's disagreement with the BIA's decision does not mean it was a due process violation, and that, quote, there is no liberty interest at stake in a motion to reopen, as it is, quote, purely discretionary, end quote. The Fifth Circuit concluded that the BIA did not violate Mr. Gonzalez-Hernandez's constitutional due process rights. Therefore, the Fifth Circuit denied Mr. Gonzalez-Hernandez's petition for review, and Mr. Gonzalez-Hernandez will remain in El Salvador. If you sat through all that and were confused like I was, you're not alone. Here is what Judge Greg Costa had to say in his dissent. Judge Costa based his dissent on the notion that, quote, people in similar situations should be able to expect similar outcomes, end quote. And according to the dissent, quote, that is not happening here, end quote. Judge Costa begins by discussing the Fifth Circuit's 2016 decision in Lugo Resendez v. Lynch, in which the court remanded the non-citizen's case to the BIA to consider his motion to reopen based on a change in law. And this case resulted in the BIA reopening those removal proceedings. And according to the dissent, that was not the only non-citizen who was granted such reopening. Judge Costa cited four other Fifth Circuit cases decided between 2012 and 2017, and cites 10 unpublished BIA cases in which the BIA did the same, and even, quote, advised petitioners that motions to reopen, rather than motions to reconsider, are the proper vehicle to mount a change in law challenge to removal, end quote. Judge Costa highlights that at least one such unpublished BIA case was based on DeMaia itself, and another unpublished BIA case allowed Mr. Gonzalez-Hernandez's own brother to bring a motion to reopen based on a change of law, and the BIA granted his brother's motion. The dissent does not actually disagree with the Fifth Circuit's conclusion that motions to reopen are limited to motions based on new evidence. In fact, the dissent states that if the court, quote, were writing on a blank slate, perhaps the majority's view would be the better one, end quote. But the court was not writing on a blank slate. Instead, according to the dissent, quote, the Supreme Court, the Fifth Circuit, and the BIA have all treated the reopening statute as going beyond motions relying on new evidence, end quote. And Judge Costa goes on to state that, quote, when it comes to agency actions, consistency is a statutory command, end quote. Judge Costa concluded his dissent by stating that, under Fifth Circuit case law and that of the BIA, Mr. Gonzalez-Hernandez, quote, should have his claim heard, just like Lugo Resendez's claim was heard, and just like his own brother's claim was heard, end quote. And that is Gonzalez-Hernandez v. Garland. And that's all I got for this week, folks. I'll see you next week for one more episode with me before our dear leader Kevin returns. See you then. So there you have it. You're all caught up with the past week's published immigration cases. I'm Kevin A. Gregg, a partner with the law firm Kurzban, Kurzban, Tetzeli, and Pratt, and this has been another episode of Immigration Review. Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoyed it. 
If you did, please share it with a friend and rate and review us. Each review helps new listeners find the show. And of course, subscribe to Immigration Review wherever you get your podcasts. If you like what we do and want to become a patron of the show, please check out our Patreon page at www.patreon.com forward slash immigration review or click on the link in the show notes. And if you're interested in an official Immigration Review CLE certificate for five credit hours, email me at kgreg at kktplaw.com with your full name and the episode numbers for the 10 shows you've listened to. Also, feel free to email me with questions, comments, or anything at all. And follow the show on Instagram and Facebook at Immigration Review. And send us a tweet at ImReview. That's I-M-M Review. I'll be back next Monday for a brand new discussion. Until then, I'm Kevin A. Gregg, bringing you the Immigration Review.